Thanks for listening to the nice podcast. I'm Dave Delaney. If you haven't noticed, we've taken a little bit of a hiatus over the last several months. Uh, A big revelation was found. I have ADHD, and that explains a whole lot. And of course, naturally, as a veteran podcaster, I started another podcast all about it, and it's called ADHD Wise Squirrels, and you can find it at wisequirrels.com or anywhere you listen to podcasts. Just search ADHD Wise Squirrels. Pop over and have a listen. Let me know what you think. Thanks. My dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash mpn to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash mpn. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. A lot of people don't realize that there's a healthy function to anxiety, which is to stimulate preparation behaviors. So when people don't realize this and they just suddenly have an awareness that they're anxious, it can almost be like, you know, dun, dun, dun. Oh, no, (laughs) you know, I'm anxious. The anxiety is setting in, you know, as if it's some kind of a bad thing, as as opposed to recognizing that sometimes it's exactly what you're supposed to feel. Nice. 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 Nice with Dave Delaney. Welcome to the Nice Podcast about communication, collaboration, and becoming better leaders. I'm your host, Dave Delaney from futureforth.com, where we help fast-growing tech companies retain talent and improve culture so you have happier, more connected teams. Today, I've got Dr. Chloe Carmichael with me, who is a licensed clinical psychologist. She focuses on anxiety and stress management, relationships, and goal attainment, and she's the author of Nervous Energy, Harness the Power of Your Anxiety. Welcome, Dr. Chloe. Thank you, Dave. It's great to be with you. Can I call you Chloe or doctor or what would you prefer? You can call me whatever you want, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, I am. Uh, I, yeah, I've been really looking forward to uh, to having you on the show. Uh, I've been following you on LinkedIn for quite a while, and and I love the content that you uh, that you produce uh, regularly. There's a lot of just really great stuff in there. Um, so, first question: I always like to open things with this question, so no pressure at all. But what is the nicest thing someone has done for you recently? Oh, well, thank you. That is a really nice question. Um, My husband brought me a cup of coffee this morning, which I certainly appreciated. I thought that was really nice. (laughs) It's amazing how many times our spouses end up in the uh, in the answer to that question. So that is that is uh, yeah, that's very nice of him. That's great. Yeah. And on a professional note, um, I recently went and gave a little speech for the Harvard Club. And Mm. my assistant 
took such good care of me. Ah. I swear, I felt like I was a VIP. She took care of everything and made everything happen so smoothly. So I feel very fortunate. I've got nice things happening uh, left and right here. That's that's great. That's great. So what what did she do to, to, to really make it stand out? Well, like, for example, she sent me an email the morning of the event reminding me of certain things that, you know, I needed to have happen. And, you know, she just coordinated with the event space person and the event manager person. And, you know, uh, I guess the beauty of it is, is that I almost don't even know what she did. But I know she was doing all kinds of things in the background. (laughs) And it just made it so that all I had to do was just show up and do what I do. So that was perfect. Yeah, it always feels so good that way. I've, I've, done both. I've been on both ends of that as a speaker. So I've spoken at conferences and events where, yeah, you get there and you're kind of like, so is there a green room or like, what am I, what should I be doing here? And then, and then on the flip side of that, when when it's well organized and you have someone to, uh, to manage things, uh, including you, uh, it makes things so much easier. So that's, that's very nice. I love that. Yeah. And coffee in the morning from a loved one. That's also an important, an important. Yeah. Life is pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. You can't complain. Right. So how can leaders better harness the power of their anxiety? An important topic, obviously related to your book here, but, but I also, uh, you know, I think in this day and age with things being, you know, uh, so topsy turvy, I think anxiety is probably something, uh, something high on the list of things we, we all need to address. Yeah. So I think that for leaders with, you know, that want to manage their anxiety well, the first thing to do is actually to kind of take the sting out of the fact that they're having anxiety because mm-hmm. a lot of people don't realize that there's a healthy function to anxiety, which is to stimulate preparation behaviors. So when people don't realize this and they just suddenly have an awareness that they're anxious, it can almost be like, you know, dun, dun, dun. Oh, no, you know, I'm anxious, the anxiety is setting in, you know, as if it's some kind of a bad thing, right. as, a, as opposed to recognizing that sometimes it's exactly what you're supposed to feel. For example, before I did that talk for the Harvard Club, I mentioned, I did, of course, have a little zing of anxiety, I didn't know for sure that the talk was going to go great, right. Mm. And so what that little boost of anxiety did, is it, you know, caused me to double check that I was prepared, you know, double check that everything was as it should be. um, And that pointed me in the right direction. If I instead had responded to that anxiety by becoming anxious about the anxiety as if it was something wrong with me, then I would not only fail to use the anxiety constructively, but the anxiety would actually just kind of spiral and snowball. Um, One other point about that, you know, not only for leaders to make sure that they put their own anxiety to its right use for themselves, but by doing that, not only do they improve their own sake, but they they model something healthy for their team, right? Mm. They don't have to try to pretend to their team that everything's fine or that we can't acknowledge that we have anxiety, you know, kind of that blustery, no fear mentality, right? Right. Um, when, When leaders can be comfortable with it and say, yeah, of course, this is a bit of an anxious time. How can we use that constructively? I think it opens things up for the team. Yeah, that's really interesting. So it kind of changes the perspective too, for from the the leader's point of view or from your own point of view, where you're feeling anxious, you can turn that around to be a positive thing. Like you're gonna by by handling the the anxiousness the right way, 
you're you're then teaching your team members, you know, how they can also kind of follow suit. Is that what you're saying? Exactly, exactly. I mean, and also when leaders don't know how to do that, they're actually vulnerable to things like micromanaging (laughs) or, you know, irritability or, you know, even substance abuse and other things that entrepreneurs and leaders um, can have happen sometimes if they don't know how to just have a normal, healthy relationship with anxiety, which does not mean to have no relationship with anxiety. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, that's, that's great. And, and you can see it too. You know, I've, I've watched a bunch of your clips and things on, uh, you know, you've been on ABC Nightline and Inside Edition and, you know, VH1 and things. And so, you know, in, in being on television, I mean, obviously, uh, I've, uh, you, you naturally are nervous too, cause you're about to, you know, face the nation. Uh, and so it's the same sort of idea. Do you, do you actually go through any sort of exercises before, that kind of higher pressure or, or speaking at Harvard, of course, um, these kind of high, higher pressure points where you, do you, do you go through an exercise or do you just kind of, I, I know you, and we'll talk a little bit about meditation and mindfulness, but do you do anything ahead of these types of engagements to, to kind of, yeah. Calm yeah. Well, nerves? you, yeah, you, you actually touched on exactly what I do as far as meditation and mindfulness there. Right. So yes, I mean, it absolutely includes, not just, you know, taking some deep breaths, although the three-part breath is a technique I do from my book, mm. but it's different from when people say like, oh, just take a deep breath and let it go. That is not what I'm doing. Right. I'm, ta- I'm taking a deep breath to center and focus myself. And yes, my body is feeling kind of that sense of feeling on and my mind is like a little bit hyper in a sense Mm. when I'm about to go on TV or I'm about to go on the stage, but I'm not trying to get rid of it. I'm trying to actually kind of find my edge within it. And that's where that those deep breaths or that mindfulness is coming in. It's not like I'm trying to just breathe away the anxiety. (laughs) I'm trying to really tune deeply into that moment, including the extra little burst of adrenaline and energy that Mother Nature gives us at those go times of life. Yeah. yeah. It's funny, you know, I I think sometimes these these terms need to need to be reskinned some way in some ways. Like for example, with, with meditation, people, you know, associate it with sort of this woo woo kind of vibe (laughs) or, and if they're not into that kind of, you know, they're like, Oh, I would never do that. But like, for example, I've been, I've been meditating daily for about definitely over a year, probably about a year and a half and, and, and practicing mindfulness and really take it. I've, I've dabbled over the years, but for the last year and a half, I've really taken it much more seriously. And, and it's part of what I do every day. And I've been talking to friends about it and, and they keep, you know, they keep, I'll be like, Hey, so, you know, how's, how's it been going? You know, have you, have you been enjoying it? Are you doing it? And they're always like, Oh, I just can't quiet my mind. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I can't shut my brain off. And, and I'm always saying like, that's not the point. Like the point is to kind of like give yourself a little bit of peace and being in the moment. Right. Well, I would also want those people to know it's not to me necessarily at all, as you said about quieting 
the mind or honestly even necessarily about peace. It's about tracking the mind. Yes. It's, it's about having what psychologists call metacognition, mm-hmm. which is awareness of your overall thoughts and where your mind is going. And I can understand a lot of times someone might say, well, why do I need to meditate to know what's going on in my mind? It's my <laughs> own mind. Like, why would I need to track it? But the interesting thing is that for intelligent driven people, we can get so involved in things that we can actually lose sight of the bigger picture of what is happening in our minds. A very simple example of that is, you know, have you ever, say, found yourself sitting at your desk and then suddenly realized that you haven't eaten in eight hours and that you're starving? (laughs) Or, you know, found yourself, say, ordering some food at a deli, coming from the New York side here, and then, you know, suddenly just realized that, like, you're, you're really snappy with that deli guy. And then said to yourself, wow, I guess I'm a little irritable. (laughs) I guess I'm a little stressed out today. Um, And it's that that somebody who has the mindfulness and the metacognition that they would be able to spot those things more quickly. And then to me, this is also the, the real bonus of it is that instead of becoming judgmental and saying, oh, I'm so bad. Why am I being such a jerk to the deli guy? And then just spiraling into that thought yeah. to, to be able to have the overall awareness of saying, ah, I think I'm stressed out because I'm actually really frustrated that say, you know, my assistant hasn't been, you know, doing X, Y, and Z. What I need to do is to have a chat with her about that, you know, or I I realize that I have been skimping on my sleep too much. And that's what's pushing me over the edge here. Instead of yelling at myself for being irritable and becoming irritable with myself, I'm actually going to rethink my sleep schedule a little bit. So that's what I mean by that meta awareness that a good mindfulness meditation will bring you rather than what some people think of as mindfulness, which is just, you know, taking a deep breath and being in the moment. It's so much more than that. So to stop people from yelling at the poor deli guy, uh, (laughs) um, I know you, you studied, uh, Buddhism, right. And meditation, I think it was Robert Tenzin Thurman. Is that right? Yes. I've studied in, in several different places, including, including with him. Yes. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about that and maybe, uh, not not how well, perhaps how it compares, but I I think how can people adopt mindfulness in their daily lives or meditation in their daily lives to help you know help kind of foster this this embrace of mindfulness. Mm-hmm. Well, one thing they can do um, is literally for free they can go to drchloe.com slash breathe ah, and. Nice. Yeah, that's like I'll lead them in the three-part breath exercise or at nervousenergybook.com. If you share your email, there's um, actually a better video of me leading you through some, you know, mindfulness and breathing exercises. Nice. Um, So, yeah, I mean, I started off as a yoga teacher before Mm -hmm. I became a psychologist. So in my like very late teens, I got into yoga and then became an instructor. And in my early 20s, I was teaching yoga. So I really got into mindfulness and meditation first that way. Mm. Um, And then it was through that work that I started to get really interested in psychology. And then it was in my graduate courses in psychology that I started to learn about metacognition and connecting that with mindfulness. And how did that connect? Like what, like how does mega metacognition, did you have like this aha moment or is that sort of in the teaching of metacognition? 
Well, I mean, it was, I guess that to me, there were so many aha moments, like, mm-hmm. gosh, I could, I could riff on my grad school days forever. It was so much fun. You know, it was such a labor of love. Yeah. But, um, but learning specifically when I learned the term metacognition, which I, you know, just learned when I was taking a psychology course in cognition and just learning the term metacognition and saying, oh, that is, you know, so much like a true mindfulness practice in a true mindfulness practice, you know, maybe you're 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 doing a, a a breathing exercise but the real work of the mindfulness practice is to actually be able to notice your reactions to the breathing exercise mm-hmm. um and so it's thinking about your thoughts and so to be able to notice for example well you know today when i did the breathing exercise i kept asking myself if i was doing it right and i kept having this constant insecurity about if i was doing it right, right. and then to be able to connect that insight about yourself to say, I seem to take that habit everywhere. I seem to always have this insecurity about, am I doing it right? Or I was doing the breathing exercise today and, you know, I just found myself, you know, my mind constantly wandering to thinking about some certain topic or whatever. And it's really just observing your reactions to doing something that's supposed to be a mundane, simple thing like breathing that helps you to see and highlight your reactions to it. That's And then what you're actually then supposed to do in a proper mindfulness practice is put your observations into words, whether by telling somebody else or writing them down. And the reason you do this, and this is now what Harvard Medical School and Johns Hopkins you know, have, have proven, but what Buddhists have known forever, is that that's what helps you to take your internal experience and put it into words quickly. And that sounds simple enough, say when you're you know, observing your breath and using words to describe your reaction to it, not that hard to do really. Right. But when you practice doing that, you build the skills of being able to do that when you're under pressure. So for example, if you, know, you are in that moment where you suddenly find yourself not only snapping at the deli guy, but then you realize that standing right behind you is your assistant and that somebody has seen you snapping mm-hmm. and then and then you have to find the internal awareness in that moment to be able to look around and say to everybody wow, I sound a little grouchy today. I think I need to work on my sleep patterns. You know what I mean? So to be able to understand your own internal experience and verbalize it on the fly is the skill that you build from those quiet practices of observing something simple like your breath. It's really funny, actually. You you made me recall, uh, I read Dr. Sanja Gupta's book on uh, mind health. Uh, It's like a bestseller. It's pretty popular now. And, uh, and in it, or in an interview, or I listened to the audiobook, and he was talking about meditation and how he was sort of, I guess, kind of getting, he was trying to meditate, you know, properly, let's say with air quotes. And he was actually working with the Dalai Lama to do it. And so the Dalai Lama is like, okay, well, let's just, let's just try. And so he, I'm butchering the story, but the long and the short of it is that he closed his eyes and started going through this meditation process that the Dalai Lama was also doing with him. And then he's, his, with eyes closed, he hears laughter and he's like, what? And he opens his eyes and the Dalai Lama is laughing and he's like, what's up? And the Dalai Lama is like, uh, he says something to the effect of like, I just can't focus today. (laughs) It was something like that. And I love this story because it just goes to show you that, you know, 
even the Dalai Lama uh, struggles with it, just like we all do in a way. Well, but what's interesting there is what the Dalai Lama, I think, was also illustrating is that the point is not necessarily to, quote, quiet your mind or be at peace or whatever, but to be able to observe and know and describe what's going on in your mind and to do it in a non-judgmental way. So for him to be able to just be supernatural and able to find the words and say exactly what it is, oh, I just can't focus today, that's actually a mindfulness this example right Right. there. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's so true. Actually, I've been using Sam Harris's, uh, uh, app for my, for my sort of meditation, my daily meditation. And, uh, and I, I did, I had this revelation pretty early or early on, I guess, after doing it for a while. And, I was still sort of, ups- uh, I was naively like my friends that I, I described to you trying to like quiet the mind and not think of anything. Stop thinking of things. And one day, like early on in the practice, he said, it's, it's a guided meditation. And he says, okay, now I want you to just let yourself think of anything, let yourself think of anything and then let it play out like a movie in your head. And so I did and it ended. <laughs> and and I found I find that this really helps now when I'm when I'm kind of you know trying to be present and trying to quiet quiet my head a little bit and just you know find a little bit of peace in the day. Um, I, I'll think of something, but I'll let it roll out. I'll let it play out, and then it ends, and then I can get back to what I was focused on. Makes sense. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's 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 definitely helpful for sure. You talk about the nine techniques. Uh, can you get into that a little bit with with uh, from your book? Sure. So there are nine techniques, as you said, um, in my book, Nervous Energy, Harness the Power of Your Anxiety. And I just mentioned the title there to kind of give a framework of what the techniques are about and what they are for. So as I was saying earlier, many people don't realize that there is a healthy function to anxiety, which is to stimulate preparation behaviors. And they're so used to seeing like people would come and they say, Dr. Chloe, how do I get rid of my anxiety? Mm. And they would again, be thinking that the whole point is to just take a deep breath and let it go or whatever. And I'm like, no, no, we don't always just want to do that. Um, Sometimes the point of the anxiety is that it's stimulating us to lean in and deal with something. Or sometimes it really is best to do a sophisticated mental pivot and actually still use the zing of the mental energy, Mm -hmm. but just point it at something else in your life so that it can help you um, in some other department of your life. So that's why there are nine techniques. And the first one is that three-part breath, that mindfulness technique that I described, because before we can know whether we need, say, a good lean-in technique or a good pivot away technique, we first have to really understand, you know, what the anxiety is about. So there are nine techniques and it, it kind of works like a cookbook in the sense that you can choose whichever one you want in no particular order, mm. except for that first one of the mindfulness technique so that you know which of the other eight techniques is going to be best for you because you've done a good you know, observation of those other, um, of the anxiety. So you know which of the other techniques to use. Mm, interesting, interesting. So w- when it comes to things like self-esteem and self-doubt, what are some some tactics to dealing with that? Because I think that is something, uh, you know, with the with the Dunning Kruger effect and so on, with that that leaders who are in you know pretty 
powerful positions, uh, they tend to feel that self-doubt more often than not. My dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash mpn to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash mpn. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. Right. So the thing about it is um, when people have self-esteem issues or, you know, self-doubt issues, the answer is not to always just think positive thoughts and tell yourself what a capable person you are. Mm. Um, Sometimes the self-doubt is actually stemming from the need to increase your skills in a certain area, right? Mm. So if somebody were, you know, say, about to try to negotiate a deal for their business, or they had a meeting with an employee that they thought was going to be asking for a raise, and like, you're not sure you really want to give that raise just yet. um, And you're feeling some self-doubt about your negotiation skills, or feeling a little bit deflated because you don't feel super strong in that department. Um, I, I don't always go for just kind of the standard knee jerk response of saying, well, you know, let's think happy thoughts and remind yourself, you know, that that you're a smart and capable person. Again, sometimes that anxiety is there to stimulate preparation behaviors. So sometimes it might be stimulating you to, um, say, ask a friend to do a mock negotiation with you or to read a book about the negotiation or whatever the case Mm. may be. Um, So I I think it would really depend on the situation. Um, But again, there's there's a real value in that mindfulness and observing. So on the other hand, if you're able to observe the anxiety about the example of a negotiation meeting coming up and you're like, well, actually, I've negotiated many things very well. I don't need you know, to take a course in negotiation. I just need to actually believe in myself more, mm. you know, then in those cases, I might have the person come up with, say, a mental highlight reel of all the times that they've done, you know, great negotiations or certain types of thought replacements, like I have prepared to the guilt for this meeting and I know I'm going to do the best I can, but I don't really give people permission to use that type of um, self-talk unless it's true that they've actually done all of the preparation steps, you know, that they should. Mm. So what you're saying is you can't, or not that you can't, but it's, you need to be able to be in a good place. I mean, there's a reason there's a reason why your brain is telling you, hey, you know, maybe you're not ready for this thing, right? Like sometimes you aren't ready for the thing. Exactly. So the Dunning-Kruger effect, as you know, yeah. is is where somebody who actually has a low ability overestimates 
their actual ability, right? And so that's where I think a lot of this, um, you know, kind of popular psychology self-esteem stuff falls short when it says, you know, just tell yourself you're a girl boss, you know, or, <laughs> um, you know, just 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 do 10 push-ups and um, tell yourself, you know, that, that you're going to own this, right? We're actually setting ourselves up for failure if, if we're not comfortable to acknowledge the fact of certain skills, you know, that we do just need to build. And there's no shame in recognizing what those skills are. I hate to sound like a broken record, but to me, it really does come back to that mindfulness ability to be able to appraise yourself with without a, you know, with neither fear nor favor, as the New York Times says, right? <laughs> to, to be able to just say, yeah, like, these are the areas that I do need to improve. And it's nothing personal about myself. It's just a fact. And then to be able to think about how to take action on those areas for improvement. Are there ways to tap into sort of that self-knowledge of your level of skills to say, eh, I probably need more work in this, in this area or, or even personality assessments, whether it's, you know, like a Myers-Briggs or something like that to get a better understanding of your own strengths. Where, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I mean, we were talking about like with with um with the Dunning Kruger effect, it's really more about skills, right? So like yeah. a personality assessment, you know, I guess to a certain degree that could be about skills. Like if you had a personality assessment and discovered that maybe you're low in the skill of knowing when to ask for help or um, low in the skill of, you know, taking credit for things or whatever it is, then you could certainly get, you know, practice and training in that. Um, but when it comes to other types of, you know, business skills, like whether it be knowing how to be relatable and charming and make small talk or, yeah. you know, knowing how to set limits with people or negotiations. Um, to a certain degree, I think your bottom line often will tell you like where you're falling off mm. Um or I think, you know, talking to a coach and this is in no way a plug for myself. I'm like not, you know, even really <laughs> taking new clients. Um, in fact, if people want to, they can even Google. Um, I wrote an article for U.S. News and World Report on how to choose a good online therapist or coach. Yeah. Um, so people can certainly check into that. But I, I do think that working with a good coach who's able to notice kind of for you, if you're afraid that you might have some blind spots and not necessarily know like what are the areas that you do need to improve your skills in? Um, you can hire somebody, or if you have even a business partner, frankly, a spouse as well, because like mm. they know you, they watch you. Um, you know, you you can always ask ask for that feedback from people. I think sometimes as well, even asking your employees. I once knew somebody who set up an anonymous email address and gave um, his whole company as well the password to the account and said, you know you all can email me from this account. It's an anonymous account and I'll never know, you know, who you were and you can all give me feedback that way. So I think really just making yourself not only open to feedback, but even actively soliciting it from people can help. Yeah. That's one of the things I do with future forth is working with leaders of fast growing tech companies. One of the things I do initially is um, beyond the conversations of, of what the, the, you know, problem spots are with the leadership, but also doing an anonymous employee survey to get a feel for, you know, 
what that feedback is like compared to where the problems are in the, in the mind of the leadership. So it's, uh, yeah, I think that's really helpful. And I'll, I'll include a link to, uh, everything we're talking about today in the, in the notes. So, so uh, anybody listening can click the, the link from their app, um, because the article that you just mentioned, um, would be a wonderful resource. I, I'm not familiar with the article, but I think, I think there are so many uh, snake oil salesmen out there these days um, and, and finding having a good resource of, of where to find, you know, great, great help is, is a great idea. Now, you've also done a lot of work with with couples and relationships. How are they sort of you, you tapped on that or you talked a little bit about, you know, maybe talking to your spouse. Um, what are some thoughts on that and how it relates to work and, and business? Yeah, so I, I will, I'll answer that. And as long as we're talking links, I think something that would also just be good to include, um, I'm happy to give just, you know, like a free month of membership to your listeners okay. um, for my Insiders Club, mm. which has a video in it called Dr. Chloe's Top Tips for Entrepreneurs. Mm. And um, in that video, I talk about how to find a good coach. And I also talk about what you just mentioned, which is how to connect with your spouse and your family and how to deal with some of those job stressors. Because a lot of times I'll find that entrepreneurs are working a lot and they're putting a lot of time and effort into their business. And then somehow that's perceived to be in competition with the time and effort that they're able to put into their relationship. And honestly, it's, it, it really confounds me that that's, um, a tough loop to close for people because the truth is that nine times out of 10, the person is putting in that time and effort on the business because they want to be a provider and take good care of their family and create resources for their family. It's not as if, you know, they're spending a hundred hours a week at the gym trying to get the perfect pecs, you know, (laughs) they, they, they're actually putting a lot of time and energy into working for the business for the sake of the family. And so, so in that video, Top Tips for Entrepreneurs, where your audience can get free access, yeah. I also walk through you know, some of the simple scripts that are easy when you kind of maybe just hear them articulated, again, going back to that mindfulness ability to be able to put all of that into words and explain it to your spouse, um, that that can be really helpful to make it clear to the family why you're doing what you're doing. Yeah, and I think it does come down to that answering that why, right? Like, why, why are you working so hard? Or why are you striving to make so much money or whatever it may be, like from a professional standpoint? But yeah, I mean, I think about it from my own perspective with my wife. And, and, you know, part of our goal, like we've been working out pretty regularly for the last couple of years or year and a half. And, and because we want our kids to, well, hope maybe they'll have maybe we'll have grandkids one day and we want to be able to play with them. I think knowing why you're doing what you're doing is, uh, you know, to your point is, is important. So, uh, yeah, I will definitely, uh, keep, uh, include links for that. What, what do you, what are some of the biggest concerns you have? I know you've been writing a fair amount and talking a fair amount about sort of this, this hybrid, uh, work, working condition that we're, we're now in, uh, you know, I know many companies have gone fully remote, and then other companies are trying to get their team members back in the office. What are your thoughts with with hybrid work or or that kind of uh, that kind of topic? 
Well, honestly, I think it's fabulous, truly. I mean, mm. I personally, I, from my perspective, it's actually opened up a whole incredible world. You know, I've been doing a lot more speaking and I've even been doing TV from my home studio. Right. Um, you know, so uh, for me also, I, I have a five-year-old son. So the chance for me to just, you know, work a lot more remotely has honestly been fabulous. Um, at the same time, I do think that it's really important to find ways for teams to get together and, you know, have outings and and be together. I think there's also just a matter of, of personality and fit. So I'm somebody that honestly has more of an issue of stopping to work, you know, like I, I need to just sometimes consciously go put my phone in another room and just instead try to get into something else so that I don't just default on to work. So mm -hmm. for me, as somebody that doesn't have any kind of a problem focusing at work, it's perfectly fine for me to be working remotely. For other people that maybe just don't have quite that natural drive, there's something about the setting of an office that offers what psychologists call an environmental cue that, you know, yeah, <laughs> helps yeah. to like put them into that mindset. Also, I'm somebody that just reaches out and communicates with people naturally. So it's no problem. I don't lose touch with people or let conversations go unhad just because I'm not in the office. Whereas again, for other people, uh, the need to be in a, in a place at a water cooler, going to happy hour regularly with colleagues after work, they actually kind of need that. So I don't really think it's a one size fits all thing. I honestly see the pandemic situation just more as opening up a bigger menu for people that you can work in different ways, just depending more on your personality. From the employer standpoint, when you're trying to employ a remote team, I can talk about that a little bit too, yeah. if that's, yeah. I mean, I think that the, the concern for employers is to make sure that their employees who are working at home are actually working, right? Yeah. Um, and so I do have a fair amount of remote employees, like a pretty good amount of them. And I had them even before the pandemic, just because I do a fair amount of offshore employment. Mm. And one of the rules that I have for my offshore employees, or really anyone who's going to be working remotely on the clock, is that at the start of your shift, you chat in on Google chat. And then during the entire time that you are working, I expect you to be 100% responsive on chat. So that means if I chat and I say, hey, can you send me such and such doc? I literally expect within one minute or less some kind of a response like, yep, let me get it. And I know people, sometimes one of the fall-offs has been like, oh, well, you know, what if somebody you know, has to take a restroom break, they're going to go get a coffee, whatever, do I expect them to be chained to their desk for eight hours? No, of course not. Right. But what I do expect them to do is what we have is we have what we call the all staff chat. And so anybody who's logged in to work, logs in on that all staff chat and logs out at the end. And if they're going to step away from their computer, no problem, but they are expected to chat out for a few minutes, just chat and say, hey, I'm stepping away from my desk for a few minutes, you know, I'll 
be back in a few. Mm. And then when they return, they chat back. And I explained to them the reason for this is because otherwise it is freaking maddening that yeah. you're sitting there trying to chat somebody. You're staring at the chat window every minute, every two minutes, you're babysitting that little chat to see yeah. where they are. And so I just explained to people, it's very important that you need to chat in and chat out. And I think that not only streamlines the communication during the day, but I think it also, um, it's not a good phrase to use, but I think it keeps people on a little bit of a shorter leash time-wise, right? Is that yeah. they, they know that they need to be accountable when they're supposed to be logged in. I just think that's very important. I used to work with a colleague. You're, you're reminding me. I, uh, <laughs> I had a colleague who, uh, and we were, we were all on instant messenger back then. And um, he would answer a question in instant messenger he would answer a question he would start to type so you'd see the you know the dot 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 mm. and then he would like go for a smoke break <laughs> or take off for lunch and i'd be sitting there waiting for the answer like what's what's taking so long is he thinking about it what's happened uh but yeah so you just you right know. and who has the time and mental energy for that right so yeah. um as you said i think just setting the expectation from the start and also just making it clear like the reason for this is so that we're you know we're all able to know when to chat you, when not to chat you. Mm -hmm. You can take a break, you can go for a minute, but just just let us know because we're working remotely here. Um, and I just think it helps people to stay courteous and to keep their empathy hat on. So it's extremely expensive to retrain and replace talent. It's time consuming and, and costly. Um, so this is why culture is so important uh, in retaining talent. Now, if you have a remote team, who are, you know, uh, international team, then that, you know, chances are coming together are probably slimmer than, than maybe if you were in the, within the same, you know, couple States or something. So tell me a little bit about challenges that you might be facing with, with culture, uh, you know, keeping that retention high. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm proud to say that like my offshore team, um, like at least three of them, uh, we've had for at least five years and, mm. You know, many of them are, you know, multi, multi-year. Um, I think one of the things that helps is, I mean, I know you're talking on a certain level about culture and like getting together and having good times, but what I actually think can also be helpful is I give my employees, my offshore employees in particular, a chart um, that shows them year by year, what benefits they will accrue. And that can be things like health insurance being added, additional days off being added. It also includes raises, although it does say these raises are, you know, just for example purposes, yeah. um, you know, you're going to be evaluated, but it does at least give them some milestones and some ideas of like what's expected. And it also says on there as well, you know, how to succeed at karmical psychology. This is all just done on one pager, mm -hmm. but it has like five or six points, you know, that, that we also need. And it includes things like you know, taking ownership of mistakes and, you know, just all of that kind of thing. And um, I think that what that does is it creates a culture of security and a mm. culture where people know what's expected of them and where they know exactly what they can expect, you know, for years and years to come that our company will stay with them, will grow them, you know, and will reward them. And honestly, that all staff chat, I think actually really does help to create a culture of, you know, connection 
information and connectivity because my U.S. employees use the Steam Chat as well, mm. and so there is you know just something where we all come together. We also do have you know like holiday parties and things like that that are online, um, and we've been doing that you know since even before the pandemic. And also, I will um, pay for them to have their own parties together in their location. I'll give them a budget for that and nice. let them have a nice party. And then they, you know, like they'll always take pictures and things like that, and um, they always enjoy it. Also, um, in as probably is true for many places where people offshore. I happen to offshore in the Philippines a lot, where they recently had, as you probably know, a terrible typhoon. Mm. Whenever there are, you know, major, you know, weather events or challenges that they have in their location, I always. Um, You know, give some extra money, not only for them, but I say, you know, for your um, family members, like if they might be affected, you know, that they can have this too. Another thing I do is I actually, um, I'm active in a charity. The one I happen to use is called Kiva, K-I-V-A.org, mm-hmm. um, which provides microloans to female entrepreneurs in developing economies. And you're able to choose where your money is allocated and even to whom. Like you get to look at like a database of entrepreneurs and choose which ones you're going to, you know, I say donate, although it's actually a loan. They do yeah. repay the money. Yeah. And I let my Filipino team choose who's going to get that money every month. And so they also feel like they're helping their own community. So I try to get involved in their community in my own way, even though I'm far away. That's awesome. Actually, I'm a big fan of Kiva. I've been using Kiva for years. And awesome. Yeah. Um, in the, I have a talk at futureforth.com on the website uh, called The ROI of Nice uh, about a lot of what I speak about. And that presentation, I actually talk about using Kiva as a way to bring departments together in your business. So for example, if you have a small business, similar to what you're explaining, where you bring, you know, you say, okay, I'm allocating 500 or what thousand or however much to your uh, department budget for Kiva, and but it's up to you all to decide where that money goes. And so mm-hmm. they come together to decide. In your case, it's it's female entrepreneurs in the Philippines, or maybe even closer to where they are, you know, geographically speaking. But for others, it might be, well, I'm I'm a vegetarian or I'm a vegan, so I don't I, w- I would rather support you know n- non animal farming and 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 so there's different yeah there's different categories and and as you're as you're saying the the cool thing about Kiva.org is because it's a micro loan, yeah that money gradually gets paid back and so you could withdraw it but that's lame so you can resend it out and so you, those Absolutely. funds as they come back you're just distributing it again and again and again so I've Absolutely. had yeah, I've had hundreds of dollars in there for years and they just keep recirculating it's great it's awesome it really is you know and I, I think it also communicates to those offshore employees mm. that I care about you I care about your you know your your community um, I, I really think it actually creates a lot of bonds. Yeah, for sure. Tell me, uh, I know we're running out of time here and I will move to the lightning round in just a sec, but I'm curious as far as a virtual holiday party, are there things, are activities, things that you do that others might, uh, might uh, mimic or create their own version of? 
Well, honestly, I, I could probably take a few suggestions myself in that way. I don't think we do anything, you know, super special. It's, you know, usually just kind of getting together, having some drinks sure. together online, you know, just talking and visiting regular stuff. But what I also think really, really, you know, has been the most fun for them um, is when they go and I pay for them to have their own party, you know, understandably, because, you know, online parties can only be so much fun. Fun, right. right. Um, sure. But but they get to go and they have a nice party. And I think it increases their own just sense of professional identity, you know, that I give them a nice budget that they get to go to a nice place and um, all get together. And I do also pay for their travel because they don't all happen to like live in the same city. Mm. So, you know, I pay for them to be able to just actually get together and um, have a good time. And they, they, they take the pictures, they post the pictures to their social media. Um, they, I, they, they seem to actually really enjoy it. <laughs> that's great. That's a, that's a good idea. And I, uh, yeah, I love it. I love it. Okay. Well, let me move to the lightning round. I promise uh, it's easy peasy. <laughs> Complete this sentence. Nice guys and gals finish. First. <laughs> <laughs> What's a nice book that you recommend to the nice makers? Nervous energy, harness the power of your anxiety. <laughs> What's another book that you didn't write that you recommend? How to Win Friends and Influence People. That's uh, a classic. Yeah, good call. Good call. Uh, how is Dr. Chloe nicer herself? Massages. <laughs> I get massages all the time. I love them. Nice. Yes, yes. I, uh, I'm with you on that. Um, and if you had a billboard, what would it say? Well, <laughs> honestly, I, I would say the healthy function of anxiety is to stimulate preparation behaviors because, like I said, I'm just so used to people coming to me and asking how they get rid of their anxiety, and I want them to know that they don't need to get rid of it. It's actually there for a constructive purpose if they just know how to use it. Mm, yes, great, great point to, to close on. Dr. Chloe, thank you so much for being a guest today and for joining me. Well, how can people get a hold of you and, and learn more about what you do? Sure. I think nervousenergybook.com is probably the easiest, you know, thing to remember of nervousenergybook.com. Mm. And then through that, you know, they can connect with me on social media. I'm all over Instagram and YouTube. I also have a free newsletter. So if they do go to nervousenergybook.com, um, they can connect with me further through there. And as I mentioned, also, I'll be happy to extend a free month of the Insiders Club to your listeners. Awesome. Well, thank you again for that. And everybody. The links will be in the show notes. So thanks again for joining me today. It was such a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the nice podcast. Please leave a review. If you enjoyed this episode at friend.nicepodcast.co and you can find show notes, links to other episodes and lots of other goodies over at nicepodcast.co music by Alistair crystal at alistaircrystal.ca. We'll see you next time and be nice.
You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Christy Heiler hosts a fantastic podcast called Own It. Christy, tell us more about the show. Own It is all about celebrating women and non-binary advertising agency owners. We talk about buying out of the Boys Club of Advertising because less than 1% of ad agencies are owned by women. And where can people subscribe? You can find the podcast at untilyouownit.com. We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe.